In this podcast, I conduct my first interview, and it turned out great. I met up with lean consultant and former owner of Plywork, Kel Van Zone, along with David E. Hall, sustainability consultant for Plywork and professor at Portland State University. We discuss how Kel and Dave worked together to make Plywork more eco-conscious, and how Kel connected lean concepts, systems thinking, and permaculture into those efforts. We talk about the following topics, we go through introductions and backgrounds from each. We also get into sustainability versus eco-conscious wording, talk a little bit about Patagonia, the natural step framework, how they went and replaced bubble wrap and switched from plywood to bamboo, talk a little bit about biomimicry and wood glue, uh, forest stewardship council certification, Talks a, we'll talk a little bit about what is better, shipping bamboo from China or trucking bamboo from within the U.S. Um, eco-conscious freezer paper experiments. Talk about the gold mine book. Some lean and green tours that he conducted. Uh, permaculture principles. Talk about employee engagement with bike commuting tracker system. Uh, employee bike and, wike, and walking incentives. And the recycling program. We'll also talk about a culture of collaboration workshops that they're working on, Plywork Manifesto and how he ran his business, Taichi Ono comes up, Martin Luther King Volunteer Day, changing and influencing vendors after they went lean and green, uh, compare FFS, FSC to SFI wood certification. We'll also wrap up and talk about what happened to Plywork and talk about the next steps for Dave and Kel, along with their views on the green economy moving forward with the Trump administration. So this interview is 90 minutes long, but I feel it'd be really worth your time to listen to the whole thing. There are a lot of references in the interview, so go to the show notes page for the links. We also list their contact information if you want to connect with Kel or Dave. So you can connect with, with Kel at vanzone.com, V-A-N-Z-O-E-N.com. And you can reach David Hall at the Portland State faculty page, and we'll have a link there. I'd really like to hear your feedback on this interview. Is this something you'd like to hear more of? What were your key takeaways? Contact me through the website at lean6sigmaenvironment.org. Hope you enjoyed the interview. All right, so this is our 17th episode, and I've got two guests with me, Kel Van Zone and David Hall. Uh, Hello. If you guys want to introduce yourselves Hi. and give a little background on how you are involved with um, lean and, and green and from your background, why don't you start with you, Kel? Okay, uh, my name is Kelvin Zone. I um, used to run a company called Plywork. That's P-L-Y-W-E-R-K. You can still find it at plywork.com. Um, my wife and I started that company around 2000, end of 2005, beginning of 2006, uh, and ran that for 10 years. It was a small manufacturing company. Uh, you can go to the website and see what we made. And um, during that time, I also met Dave actually around the same time I started Plywork in 2006. We met on a camping trip and uh, started talking a little bit. And um, at some point that led to us starting to work together at Plywork in green. And that really got me very interested in green in a big way, more so than I'd ever been. Uh, Dave was definitely a huge influence there. And uh, Lean started not too long after, a couple of years after I got into Lean as well. And at some point there was an overlap where Lean and Green kind of became 
uh, connected in a big way. Um, and uh, yeah, we can get into that more later. So that's my that's my background. And after Plywork, uh, or since Plywork, which was I sold the brand uh, just over a year ago, actually, yeah, just over a year ago. And since that time, I've been a full-time consultant and uh, I'm focused primarily on lean, but really interested in how I can weave green into that whenever possible with a customer. Well, I'll try not to give my whole life story, <laughs> but I think it does start for me being born and raised in the Pacific Northwest and being raised in a family that gave me exposure to the to the natural world and the opportunity to really appreciate um, things that are bigger than myself and just yeah, the beauty and grandeur of our world. And in college, my awareness about social and environmental issues really grew. Out of college, I got involved in some social and environmental activism and in that kind of saw that there was uh, opportunity for more effective organizational efforts. Decided to go to grad school to focus on uh, organizational psychology, which is the application of psychology in the workplace. And I was very much interested in um, figuring out ways to help the sustainability movement, which at the time sustainability was just kind of becoming a, a, a word that was beginning to be used a little right. more broadly. And uh, so went to grad school with that focus. I uh, got my, my master's and eventually my PhD in that. And that was a long journey of studying and thinking about sustainability while also staying engaged in some like nonprofit work and uh, community-based uh, efforts. And long story short, uh, I got a little disillusioned about organizational sustainability efforts. Uh, participated in a lot of um, conferences and things with big companies that were going green and felt like it was uh, largely kind of a surface addressing mm -hmm. of issues, yeah. uh, a lot of greenwashing, um, some of it well-intentioned, people doing their best, but it w didn't get that deep for me and ended up shifting my perspective or shifting my studies to look at indigenous perspectives to try to understand the deeper cultural roots of sustainability issues and that coincides when with the camping trip that I met Kill. I really remember the headspace I was in with uh, again being stepping away from feeling like the sustainability conversations in the business world uh, weren't looking at whole systems and uh, and yeah just questioning some of the deeper fundamental questions fundamental issues that might be underlying uh, they're very business models. And so mm -hmm. I told Kill, if we're, if we're going to work together, you, you got to hear me go on these kinds of like, you know, rants against <laughs> uh, claims of sustainability. And in fact, that was one of our first uh, terms of agreement. That I said, I'll, I'll work with you, but you have to drop your label that they were already using of being a sustainable company, that you're not sustainable. And uh, I'll work with you if you say you're eco-conscious. Eco <laughs> is the term that we ended up going with. And just to kind of also like kind of like set the time frame here, we we met in 2006 on that camping trip, but we didn't actually officially start working together. Like Dave became the official sustainability advisor for Plywork in 2010. Mm -hmm. So there was a four-year gap where I was kind of like, every time I saw Dave at a party, we would talk about this. And I think towards the end, I started pressuring you to like work with me. And, and there, was, there was definitely some, some uh, hesitance from from your previous experience uh, that I could see, and and I think I I had the same feeling about what I'd seen to be greenwashing, and didn't want to do that, even though I hadn't 
really focused on sustainability within my organization. I did understand if I was going to do that, I was going to do it in a way that was true. And I could see that Dave, with his work um, through his thesis, was going to a much deeper level than I had seen before. And that's why I was really interested. The fact that he didn't want to do it made it so much more attractive <laughs> for me to want to work with him. Um, so I think that ultimately made for a really good relationship. How did, how did you get into the sustainability part of it? Um, was that something new to you or did you have that as part of your growing up uh, outside the U.S.? Was that part of the culture of the Netherlands or? Um, well, yeah, um, I've talked about this a, a few a few different conferences, actually. And it's interesting because the, the Dutch are seen as very sustainable. Uh, you know, we, we bike everywhere, but we bike everywhere because there's no room to drive. Mm-hmm. It's not something we choose to do, something you just have to do. Mm-hmm. It's a necessity uh, that's forced upon us by our situation, and it makes the most sense. And the Dutch tend to be very pragmatic people. Um, but there's a certain amount of pragmatism that's born out of just yeah, pure necessity. Uh, recycling also just makes sense. You know, uh, There's a lot of things that do that just make sense. Uh, and the way government's structured there, it's a little easier to do things that make sense sometimes. <laughs> um, so... I, I grew up with it, but it's not something I ever thought about. And it wasn't really until I came to Portland when I was 27 that I started thinking about it. Because mm-hmm. here, I mean, I remember coming here thinking like, ah, organic food, whatever, you know, like, what's the big deal? <laughs> but I think also, like, I probably grew up eating food that was maybe not totally organic, but it definitely wasn't, like, as heavily processed or didn't use as many pesticides or a lot of things. I mean, some of it was actually organic. I remember yeah. the village I grew up in, we used to get milk that was actually it wasn't even called milk. I don't know what it's called here. It's called biecht in Dutch. And it comes <laughs> directly from the cow. It's still warm. It's, it's like milk. a porridge. Yeah. Oh. And, it, and you put honey in it. And it's actually quite sweet and, and amazing. And it was a dessert. My dad would bring it back from his wow. farmer buddy. You know, so like I did grow up with really good food. But it was just, that's what you had. Um, but organic was something that I was, yeah, I, was, I wasn't sold on it. But then living in Portland rubs off on you. And knowing people like Dave rubs off on you. And after a while, I started seeing... I've always been a system sinker, I think. That's what attracted me to lean. Yeah. Um, and because of my attraction to like systems thinking, I think, and Dave being a system scientist, it, it was a good match and it made me think about it from that perspective from day one. So I came to it very kind of like um, naive, naively. Yeah. You know, I was very naive to sustainability and really what it was. And it was lucky that I met someone like Dave who could kind of like guide me into a way that was honest and and, uh, and a lot more um, holistic than a lot of sustainability is, especially within business. Yeah, because it sounds like from what you've told me, it's very, you've gotten really kind of deep into that discussion, not just let's, you know, use a recycled packaging on the outside, but you really kind of got into the heart of what, you, what the processes were and what you're actually doing. So, yeah. Talk me through a little bit on getting the company set up and then how did you, you start to integrate Dave into this mix and then also the lean concepts that right away, was it a couple of years into it? Did you? Um, so yeah, lean came like, so in 2010 is when we officially started um, looking at sustainability from a more, that's when we became eco-conscious. Yeah. <laughs> and Dave, do you want to talk I, a little more into this? Or? Yeah. Well, you, 2006 is when you started the company. Yeah. And right, about, about the time that I officially, it really started met. before, that but became Pyrrhic in 2007. Uh, okay. But yeah, it was around the time we met. Yeah. And so I was kind of in a 
evangelical mode. So whenever I talked with people, I was always prodding with questions, more kind of like Socratic method mm -hmm. as opposed yeah. to like standing up and like preaching. It was more like asking questions and saying, you know, do, you know, have you thought about this? Do you do these things? Or why do you do it this way? Would you yeah. consider it? You know, so <laughs> I do remember meeting him and knowing that he was running a business and asking him questions about how he was structuring his business. And his early answers were, no, you know, I hadn't really thought about that. You know, I hadn't considered these principles of sustainability. But he was curious and he was interested. So it got a, uh, it got a dialogue going. And I think uh, he started to implement some of that, um, that philosophy into the business before I formally came on, but it was in 2010 when he was like, you know, help me to take this next step as mm -hmm. the company was beginning to grow, uh, the impacts were becoming greater, and uh, and I think he was had been in Portland for longer at that point and was um, more broadly influenced and exposed to the ideas of going local and being organic and you know and if I'm going to have a business and I want it to, to say I'm sustainable, like, how do I actually do this? He was conscientious right. enough to know that he needed to go beyond just using the label and actually improve his practices. And so, and open to ideas and questions. That, that they yeah, and I think, you know, they've actually personally influenced me a lot in the sense that in just knowing Dave and being his friend, you know, we would go out for lunch and... I would offer to get him a glass of water and he would decline based on the fact that he had a bottle of water with him and, and that water needed to be drunk first, which is actually kind of lean, just in time thinking. <laughs> uh, but also because he didn't want to like have to have that glass be dirty and then further water would have to be used to, and, and cleaning product to clean it. And I was just like, oh my God, like that blew my mind. <laughs> that kind of thinking was like, and I could, you know, it, I think a lot of people might be like, oh, that's just silly. But I, to me, it made a lot of sense. I was like, well, that's, that's, that's real sustainability thinking you know i know it seems silly but like when we are stretching our resources to this point that's the kind of thinking that we have to like do and you i think that mentality you apply it you apply it to all aspects of your life yeah and it's not just one person doing it it's a you know it's a yeah. collective shared pattern of behavior those are big impacts yeah. it's like limiting our own resources choosing to limit our resources that's ultimately what you have to do in america is if you want to be you know, eco-conscious, I almost said sustainable. <laughs> if you want to be eco-conscious in your lifestyle, in your business or your personal lifestyle, you have to limit your your inputs and outputs of raw materials and, and waste. Yeah. Uh, you know, Patagonia is all about this. That's Actually, Patagonia was a huge influence early on. I may have read that book before we started working together, so Let My People Go Surf by Yvonne Chouinard. was a okay. huge influencer for me. Um, that, that was that there was definitely a few people out there in the business world who I looked up to and was massively influenced by for ply work. And yeah, that book was a, was a key driver in that just his whole, his whole business was built on sustainability and it worked because, you know, the people who were buying his clothes were outdoor adventurers. Just so just like Dave, you know, having grown up in the outdoors for them, it was hugely important because obviously um, the outdoors is the thing that's affected the most in some ways when it comes to sustainability or our lack of sustainability. Preserving those, uh, those real natural spaces. Okay, so then how did, um, what was your approach when you first started working with Kel? Either leading up to that yeah. or, or once you started officially working together? Yeah, so, well, 2010, 
I'd graduated in 2008 with my PhD, and again, my focus there was on indigenous perspectives on sustainability, okay. and there's some pretty profound uh, incongruencies with uh, Western business models between indigenous perspectives. And so in agreeing to work with Kill, I had to you know, say up front, I'm going to tell you things that you're not going to want to hear at times, and you're not going to be able to incorporate into your business practices, but you're going to hear it, mm -hmm. right? And that includes the fact that you're, you're not sustainable so long as you're in a consumer-based um, business and that you're a participant in this larger economic model and you're seeking to, kind of, you know, to grow your business and so forth and focus on an economic bottom line. Yeah. And so I said that, but I also said that there's this other framework, the natural step framework, that is, is more uh, aligned with uh, an understanding that businesses are what they are and where they are, and that if you take natural steps towards moving your business into alignment with what I think of as principles of natural law or mm -hmm. the, the, the laws of thermodynamics is really what the natural step systems conditions are based on. Okay. Um, if, if you're willing to commit to that in a longer term vision and you do what you can today to move your business in that direction step by natural step, then uh, there is a possibility that you can become a truly sustainable business. You're not going to be able to do it alone. Other organizations and other systems that you're a participant in have to be making similar kinds of incremental changes. You can be a part of that movement. And that natural step framework worked, I think, for Kill because uh, he has, a, 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 like he said, a, a systems thinking mind as well as a, a bit of a background in physics. And so the natural step is based on basic thermodynamics and understanding, like thinking of the globe, the earth as, as a whole system and sets out very uh, specific principles that you can use to assess aspects of your business against. You say, okay, we have this one supply line of materials. Uh, how does it line up on these four systems conditions? And so we started early on with educating uh, not just kill, but everybody in the company um, on the natural step and the systems conditions and the basic uh, systems theory that uh, that that framework and approach is, is based on. And is that uh, something you learned through school or did you go through the program? I ended up getting involved with the natural step um, Oregon network and doing being a volunteer while I was a grad, grad student. Okay. Um, but none of my like classes were, were teaching and I was more bringing it into my classes as part of projects or things. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, it was part of my education that coincided with my, my grad studies. Okay. And uh, so educating the whole company and then doing a, a top to bottom analysis of all aspects of their, their business in terms of the four systems conditions. Okay. And from there, I think there's a couple things to speak to. Um, one, Kel's commitment from leadership to say, I'm going to take all my employees and I'm going to pay for their time to go through this training and be educated on this value and these ideas of sustainability. Um, 
because if you look to a sustainability advisor or consultant that's going to come in and give you the answers, you're not going to be integrated in, into your culture. Yeah. And, and so he took, we took those um, appropriate early steps of, of giving permission to everybody in the company to be thinking in these terms and to be finding ways to implement these ideas into the day-to-day -day business operations. So that was huge, I think. I would also say that, just to give a lot of kudos to my, to my staff at the time, we were pretty busy um, and basically taking a half day to, to go through this training with Dave, yeah, we paid for it, but at the same time they had to do probably overtime or some of, a lot of them were part-time. We had a very liberal uh, policy around, around work in the sense that we had a lot of people working for us who were artists, so they mm -hmm. they'd only want to work 30 hours a week. So they were then forced to work extra hours mm -hmm. in order to be able to make up for the time we lost not doing production, you know, because the customers right. still need their product, even though we're sat around talking about sustainability. <laughs> and so, you know, it was really awesome to, to have our team be so open to it as well. And the team ultimately is what I, I all I really did is provide the room. And yes, you know, I made sure there was money available for certain projects and for people. Most of it was labor, to be honest, that was most of the money we yeah. spent taking the time to think about things and do things differently. Uh, the actual implementation costs uh, were very minimal often. Uh, anyway, yeah, I just want to and say... And like, probably save money in some places. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Is there an example we can walk through of maybe the natural step process through some of the materials or products? Yeah. 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 Well, so we did that top-to-bottom analysis, and the natural step framework encourages you to then go for the lowest hanging fruit. Yeah, from, basically from what we did from a lean perspective is we did a value stream map, essentially, for every single raw material that came into our uh, business and every waste stream that left our business. Wow. So, uh, and for each one of them, we... We rated them according to the natural step framework, uh, and then Dave developed his own system around that, where he went a little deeper than those four systems conditions. And for each one, he had up to five or six extra Sco subdivisions of those systems conditions. Yeah, I think it was maybe two or two or three per two or three? condition. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then there was a multiplier at the end for like how much do we use this stuff? Okay. So right. I, 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 so I can, you can have something that maybe is like really problematic across the four conditions, but it's a very, very small part of your business. You, you're buying like one little tiny jar of something super toxic <laughs> 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 that you're very rarely using yeah, and that little jar lasts you a long time. Yeah, it'd be okay. great to find a way to replace yeah. that. And one, one of those was the super not, glue that we used. Yeah, that's so exactly what we used thinking. to use it to fix little holes, but it was not something we were using that much of. Okay. Yeah, versus so. the other, the thing that came out as the the, the biggest uh, impact or offender, yeah, was bubble wrap. And okay, every single ply work would be wrapped in bubble wrap to be sent to a customer. Every single one. Um, local pickups, maybe not, but most most of your business. At that time, actually, yeah. local pickups were, and we changed that after that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You got a little smarter, <laughs> but um, and you know it was important to make sure the quality of the product was there when the customer opened it, mm -hmm. and right. you know UPS and USPS they're brutal; they'll throw things down the stairs literally. So, um, so you can't just say that's a problem and then do away with it because right. then that undercuts the, the, quality. the quality of the it's product and yeah. you got a business, right? Yeah. So, but it put on the map and the radar like, okay, we got to figure out a way to. Um, eliminate this from the process and provide an, find an alternative yeah. and that 
ultimately led to the product Jami. Yeah. Which is a all paper based, hundred percent recyclable material. Yeah. Good portion of the product itself is yeah. made from recyclable material. Yeah. And it uses a good design of perforated paper to create the same kind of cushioning and air pocket mm. that you need. Yeah. Took up less space on the yeah. in the floor, was nicer to work with for the employees, was mm -hmm. more aesthetically pleasing to receive. I will on the say that people end. complain that there was no more fun like popping bubbles. They got stressed out. We lost that part. Please, so. yeah. employee engagement went down, but uh, <laughs> all the other. Went up we did talk about putting in a punching bag as an alternative. That, <laughs> that, that never happened. <laughs> but for the, for the Giyami, we we wanted to make sure, obviously, that it was going to work. And we did. We had to use three times as much Giyami for every like foot of bubble wrap. But we were using the bubble wrap with like the uh, the quarter size yeah. bubbles. It was okay. really thick. So uh, and the Giyami was just craft paper. That's that's basically creating a pillowing effect by being perforated and expanded. Hmm. Um, so we had to wrap three times as much, but even at the extra with the extra material uh, cost, it was still the same price in the end as the bubble wrap because the bubble wrap was about three times as expensive. That was going to be my next question. So it, it ended way expensive to use this eco-friendly material. But no, it was it was actually around the same price, but the the waste was far less for us so ultimately we could use it in a much more efficient way because it was not as wide as the bubble wrap and if you only had like a tiny like plyro could come in, in sizes from two inches by two inches to 30 inches by 40 inches mm -hmm. so the bubble wrap we would buy would always be 24 inches uh we would sometimes get 12 inch ones as well but like when you're wrapping small ones there's a lot of extra waste and cutting it you kind of you can't cut bubble wrap because it blows through all the bubbles and mm -hmm. Although it's fun, it's uh, it's not very efficient, um, and it took a lot more time as well with the bubble wrap. Often, like the Giyami, actually, you don't need tape for either. You don't have to tape it. It kind of like with the pillowing effect and the, the craft paper being uh, perforated, you can kind of fold it in upon itself, and it kind of okay. catches itself. So we didn't need any tape, uh, and it was much faster to do. So when we actually got into lean as well. We start thinking about oh, like, the process nice. of wrapping and and the labor standardizing that and getting really fast and yeah it was way faster than bubble wrap and it's worth nice. acknowledging too that a product like Jami does doesn't you know go without its own impacts it still had a it still right. has a footprint right? yeah oh, yeah and, but in terms of the four systems conditions it was a profound improvement yeah. And by the yeah. time we closed or not closed the company well yeah by the time we closed the business and sold the brand. Uh, and by the way, the people who bought the brand started using Giyami because of us for all of their product. And they already had a thriving business that was much bigger than Plywork. And they actually applied Giyami across the whole organization when we, when we first implemented it. I don't know if they're still doing that, but they did at the yeah, time. Nice. They really liked it. Um, anyway, so at the time we, we closed uh, Plywork in Portland, uh, I believe we'd saved, uh, I think it was close to 40 or 50,000 square feet of bubble wrap from entering the ecosystem. So between that was 2010 and 2000 and uh, beginning of 2016. Wow. So, and that's that's a very 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 small organization. Mm -hmm. You know, if if larger organizations are thinking this way, like Amazon, I mean, look at their packaging. Yeah, how many employees do you have at certain times? Uh, the highest we ever had was 25, oh. and that was just like for one or two months during Christmas time, uh, and the. On average, we'd have like between like, well, on average, we had around 10 
Okay. Like if you spread out over yeah. the years, we employed like fifty people over ten years. Okay. On the natural step, do you the the four categories. You go into yeah. a little more detail. Uh, let's see if I can now pull them off the top of my head. <laughs> so it's phrased as like uh, the for assist for the earth to be sustainable. It's again focused on more like global scale and recognizing that. Each entity is a participant in that, on that, in that. So you can either be contributing to, or you can be undermining the the Earth's capacity Natural. to be okay. sustained. Yeah. So, um, and a, sustain, a sustainable society will not subject the Earth to systematically increasing concentrations of substances extracted from the Earth's crust. That's okay. systems condition one. So that'll cover, like, capture like your, you know, fossil fuels. Yep. And, carbon release, yep. um, that uh, the Earth will not be systematically subjected to increasing concentration of substances produced by humans in society. That's focusing on like the artificial substances like um, antibiotic, antibiotics and other synthetic products okay. um, that haven't been present on the Earth in, in, in the past. Um, Chemicals and, fall under that. Yeah, or... and there's some debate around that in terms of like, well, can we like, can we produce other things that are truly benign? Yeah, probably. Um, mm -hmm. But there are things that uh, that are going to be disruptive and uh, compromise of the living systems, um, and that uh, a sustainable society will not subject the earth to, uh, or will not undermine the earth's uh, regenerative capacities. So. Uh, recognizing that the earth has its own natural systems that have their own capacity for self-renewal and self-regeneration so like forests yep. you know and their capacity to regenerate uh, a fish population and its capacity to um, maintain sustain its populations um, and so that if you are or topsoil is another big one mm -hmm. to be thinking about in there so if you are systematically undermining the earth's capacity to regenerate itself then you're on an unsustainable path right? okay so if you're cutting down forests at rates faster than they're able to regrow or you're cutting down forests in a manner that um, is really changing the ecosystem in fundamental ways so that what's growing back is is a less diverse you know not as resilient uh, ecosystem then you know you're on a path of towards unsustainability mm. uh, if you're over harvesting a fish stock, if you're you know, uh, taking the nutrients out of the topsoil faster than you're replenishing them and building up the soil. So okay. that's what that condition captures. And then the fourth one uh, is a social one, and it's been rephrased in a variety of different ways. And it's, I think, the one that, that's hardest to capture and probably the most debated too. Uh, and if I can remember the language, I don't know what language they're using right now because it's been a few years since I've stayed in touch with, with where the natural step is at. But the fourth one on the social dimension has to do with not uh, undermining people's um, ability to serve their own needs or fulfill their own uh, their needs. Uh, and again, the, the, that's not the best phrasing, and I don't remember the exact phrasing that they used. 
but it's about matters of empowerment of democracies uh, or just making sure that people have voice and participation in governance uh, to get at educational uh, questions of you know and and matters of equality and social justice again the part of the critique is that it's this one condition that's supposed to capture the complexity <laughs> of all these social issues right. and it's, it's probably the most inadequate of the system's conditions and uh, back in the day I was a part of some panels where we looked at uh, you know what does this really mean and thinking about what are people's basic human needs and, uh, and, and really that one condition is a touchstone to a much broader set of social issues. So in a business setting, that would be how the employees or Yeah, w worker well-being, health and, and well-being of yeah. the employees. If, if we're buying materials like from overseas, uh, like, you know, we, we used a lot of bamboo, and that's, you can't make bamboo in the U.S. That's so, a whole other story, but <laughs> making sure there's fair labor practices involved in the people who are manufacturing the bamboo yeah. overseas, for instance. Okay. And then you mentioned something about getting into bamboo. Talk a little bit about the product itself, because I think that will help with the discussion. And then how you got into bamboo as a source. Yeah, um, so the product was, we started off uh, cutting up a piece of plywood that we bought at the Home Depot, the cheapest one we could find, and applying photographs to it using super glue or something like that. And my wife was a photographer, and we were looking for an interesting way to present photography. Hmm. Uh, and start selling her photographs at markets here locally in Portland, like Saturday Market and Art Walks. And people started asking if we could do it for them. So that became Plywork. That became their the business. People their... upload their own photography oh, okay. or signage <laughs> or uh, whatever. Any kind of like presentation that you want to do, we can do uh, and do it in a way that's a little different than regular framing, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, so we would mount them onto these what was just maple panels and we were buying at first we started buying apple ply i think it's called which is not necessarily that sustainable and then we got into um buying something called europly and europly was fse certified and i was like oh what's that that's interesting and the reason we bought it wasn't because it was sustainable it was because it was really high quality yeah. Uh, and it's actually something that, that Dave and I were discussing earlier today. It was like this, I think once you're conscientious about something like the quality of the material from a sustainability perspective, you also easily quickly start getting conscientious about the material from just a um, fabrication perspective, I guess, or build perspective, build quality perspective, okay, uh, yeah. aesthetic perspective. Uh, and um, Europly was aesthetically much more pleasing. It was considered like a cabinet grade plywood, so you can make really nice cabinetry out of it. Um, but it was also FSC certified and it, all the layers of material were glued together using this glue, uh, called, uh, is it pure bond mm -hmm. that was developed actually here in Oregon and uses the adhesive property of mollusks hmm. and synthesize that to make a glue. Uh, biomimicry yeah it's really really cool stuff wow. anyway so like that was interesting to me from a science perspective <clears throat> yeah you know but i wasn't really thinking about it from a sustainability perspective but the guy who i used to rent woodshop space from um he had a sustainable furniture company company at the time uh, reform design i believe they were and he was like oh you know you're using all this 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 
cool like wood here, but have you thought about bamboo? Bamboo is ultimately a lot more sustainable than, than using maple wood, you know, or this was like maple with a Baltic birch core. And that was one of the things as well that was interesting. It was FSC certified and FSC for people that don't know is a, the forestry stewardship certification, which is a international body uh, that there's a, creates a, a chain of custody all the way from the grower to the person who's selling it, i.e. us. Uh, we weren't FSC certified, but the people we were buying it from, the lumberyard was, uh, and everybody all the way back to the grower. But the wood itself had a core that was Baltic birch and alder that was grown in the Baltics, harvested there, shipped all the way around to us here in Oregon, and then they applied uh, an American maple on top. So they didn't actually consider the carbon footprint as part of the FSC certification mm, or anything. Right. So to me, that was an issue when I found <laughs> out. Um, so we started looking at bamboo, which again, it's not made here, but it's actually coming directly from China, which is much closer than the Baltics if you go all the way around by yeah. ship. <laughs> uh, so the carbon footprint is less. We also did a carbon analysis of another su supplier of wood from the U.S. that had to truck the material and found that the carbon footprint of trucking across the country was significantly greater than yeah. shipping from China. Yeah, yeah, we, we found, I think we found an East Coast supplier that did a, a plywood that we looked at. So yeah, so then we, then we got into bamboo um, and because of the recommendation of this Woodshop uh, colleague of mine. And um, the look of bamboo is really interesting compared to the plywood and people just loved it. It was darker. We got their carbonized bamboo, uh, which is a great story in itself. Like they, they get, a, you know, bamboo by, by nature is very light and then they, they boil it. And by boiling it, it, it basically car, uh, caramelizes the sugars in the bamboo, the natural sugars, and turns it like a darker color. So it's not mm. a stain. It's actually just like the entire thing becomes that brown color. Wow. So that's what we bought and that's what we presented to our, our customers and they loved it. It very, very quickly took over and became 80% of our business, um, which put our supply chain management coming from China uh, right up front with one of the biggest <laughs> pains in my asses ever in my life to deal with. Uh, <laughs> yeah, And took some wrestling, you know, with, and this is, yeah. this is where I had to just fall back on, okay, I'm going to tell you things as they are. And I <laughs> accept the fact that you might not be able to make uh, all the choices within your business to be 100% aligned with the perfect ideals of sustainability. And we're just at a, a point in our society, and there are certain values like the aesthetic of something like the bamboo and the caramelized bamboo yeah. um, that might be a driver for, driving force beyond the idea of, you know, like, getting all of our wood sourced immediately from our backyard from a perfectly sustainable forest because that product didn't exist mm -hmm. and didn't serve the need that they had to, yeah. to reach their market in the way they needed the, to. The only way you could get a truly local plywood is to have it made for you. And at that point, the cost goes from roughly uh, 100 Well, the bamboo, for instance, is $150 a sheet. Um, for an 8x4 sheet, and that was a very good price. Mm -hmm. That was not retail. Um, and for a locally sustainable, not bamboo, you can't get bamboo, but like another version of plywood, it would be, about, I think, $450 they quoted me. Yeah. And this was, this was close to 10 years ago, I think. It's so expensive. And you'd have to buy a minimum, you'd have to buy a huge minimum, which, again, from a lean perspective, made no sense. We'd have to buy a year or two supplies worth or something <laughs> to make it worthwhile. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, our hands were tied, and you know, I, I, the thing is, I think that well, this, is, this is why I said you can't claim to be sustainable. Yeah, <laughs> and I think the only reason our relationship like sustained <laughs> itself throughout the organization is because the only reason why we couldn't do something ever from a sustainability perspective was just that we didn't have the money or time to do it like genuinely it wasn't because we didn't want to mm -hmm. like everything we could do we we, we really tried to do <laughs> mm -hmm. and sometimes we failed yeah. Mm -hmm. um yeah and in our you know advertising like the more than just green page that we created it was important to me to state up there that we're on this journey we're mm -hmm. we're not there yet there are aspects of the business that don't perfectly align with of sustainability and we also welcomed our customers to inform us about you know opportunities and things that they they knew about and that actually led to some other interesting connections like the eco-conscious freezer paper the freezer paper yeah yeah that's a good one you want to talk about yeah absolutely um <clears throat> so the second most used products the kind of like the second uh, uh thing we highest defender highest <laughs> second highest <laughs> yeah. defender after bubble wrap was a uh, freezer paper the freezer paper, as you know, is what they wrap meat in when you go to the butchers. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a paper with uh, some kind of plastic liner on it, basically. And um, what we use it for is that the print on, on the plywork, mounted on the plywork, was not laminated in anything or covered in anything. It was just exposed. And that's part of the beauty of plywork is that it, it didn't hide the print behind a frame or glass or anything. Um, but during shipping, you know, if there's any kind of movement of especially the Yami paper, but even the bubble wrap, like, would actually kind of get sticky to it if it got, like, uh, during shipping, like, heat fluctuations would end up, the plastic would rub on it, mm. um, and it would damage the print. So we put a piece of um, freezer paper that was slightly bigger than the print on there for each one we shipped. Yeah. You also used it in the processing too in-house yes. like just handling the pictures yeah. making sure that while yeah during the manufacturing process that's a good point yeah, yeah. so we use it and so yeah, it's same, the purposes. same sheet you know same sheet stay okay. with the same picture yeah through the whole process. but yeah it was not eco-conscious so we were like okay we're gonna find an eco-conscious alternative and one one idea was that it was the, the backing liner to the adhesive that we used we tried that yeah and i'm trying to remember because you led the study here yeah that was another offender was the the adhesive to mount the picture to the plywood uh, i came with a backing and the backing yeah. material was this kind of waxy material that couldn't be recycled by itself and so yeah. it was a, a waste product and so we tried using that but it rubbed off and it smudged the the pictures what are the a other little things bit. you tried um well a couple other different products that were out there that were labeled as uh that serve similar purposes as freezer paper mm -hmm. uh, including parchment paper right uh, which is like a silicon base like there's a i forget the name of the company offhand but there was it's a consumer product you can find it at your grocery store that um, can be used for baking but it's a silicon base and silicon's an abundant material and uh, and i believe it was biodegradable uh, mm. which is kind of a higher classification of um, being able to actually really break down within a certain period of time and and then not be like uh, volatile in terms of like messing with endocrine systems and things like that of yeah. living organisms yeah. so we looked at that and a couple other products and it had to pass a few different tests 
the scratch test and the rub test and the dust test dust test and then yeah. the last one was the uh the kind of heat and cold test where we right. actually wrapped the whole like four different packages as we would ship them and we put them in my backyard on the table with a piece of glass above it to protect it from wet but we allowed it to be rained on and be and, and the sunshine on it and it get hot and cold for i think it was out there for like a month <laughs> something like that because the yeah forget why you felt like it was important but something to be in transit yeah, or something like that exactly. for up to a month or arrive at somebody's door yeah. and not be open and experience a lot of different temperature fluctuations along the way yeah and this material is going to be in direct contact with the print and so as those so, variables yeah. fluctuate we did this elaborate test and, and dave <laughs> led most of it it was very rigorous and very scientific <laughs> uh, well, I, mostly <laughs> I, yeah I, it was double blinded uh-huh <laughs> and uh and then we wrote up a report or you know we kept all the data and then at the end it turned out that our existing freezer paper was by far and away the best product that we could use from a quality perspective and as quality had to trump i mean and, and it wasn't just like kind of close or anything it was like way 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 better hmm. and especially when it came to the scratch test yeah um, it was, it was much one. better yeah. so it was like oh, okay what do we do now well that was a failure. So we blogged about it and we wrote about it and it was under like the quest for an eco-conscious freezer paper. Mm -hmm. And we published our failure. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I read that. being transparent about what we're doing well and what we're not doing well. Yeah. And somebody saw the blog and they wrote us and said, hey, you know, we know we actually it was the company itself. They're like, we have something. <laughs> well, yeah, they, they, they did a they, Google search for, for eco-conscious eco -conscious freezer paper. paper. Because they were looking at developing it. Ah. And like that's the, the first thing that would show up. They, no, they already had a product. Oh, they already had the product, that's right. And yeah. they were looking, looking for customers. To, for customers. Yeah. And so they searched it <laughs> and our blog post came up. So Gosh. they contacted us. And they ended up sending us a free roll to, to test so long as we would blog about it. And we tested it and it actually performed. It performed well enough to replace the, yeah. uh, the freezer paper that we had been using. Yeah. And I think now, still, if you type in eco-conscious freezer paper on Google, like the first two hits will be the two blog posts. The first one, yeah. basically, uh, documenting our failure. And then the second one, a follow-up saying, like, oh, this happened. And then we got one that worked and the success. Which we should probably provide a little addendum update note because that, uh, that company ended up discontinuing the product. That's right. They the, did, hmm. unfortunately. Yeah. Fortunately, we, we got one of their last rolls. Yeah, we did. Yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> and it was enough to but carry I don't you think, through. But you know. I don't think the new company doesn't use it anymore or need to use it because they changed the printing process for Flywork to print mm -hmm. directly to the panels, and that's a much uh, more resilient uh, product, mm. so, which is something yeah. that we, we looked at doing a, a lot for a long time, but it was just cost prohibitive for us to do. Mm -hmm. So talk... Talk to me about uh, the lean side of this. How is that integrated into that? And if there's a, a way that that supported some of the efforts you were doing with um, becoming more eco-conscious. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, systems thinking was from day one, the, the premise behind behind our sustainability efforts, because that's Dave's background for sustainability. Mm -hmm. So, and, and, and he, he definitely talked about that, but I got into lean. So 2010, we started working with Dave and did this study and replaced our uh, bubble wrap and then in 2011 end of 2011 so a year and a half later or so um, someone handed me the book uh, the the gold mine uh, by Fred Bally I think it is and I read that 
and I just ate it up. It just hit me on so many levels. But nowhere does it talk about like systems theory in that book. So I wasn't thinking about it from that perspective. But it 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 obviously hit me on that same level, and I implemented it. And we were having all the problems that you would think that you can solve with Lean at our company, and it really did solve those problems. You know, we were uh, batching, we were building way too much inventory, we were doing a lot of things the wrong way from a Lean perspective, and we changed that very quickly, and it it helped a lot. Now, um, how did you go through that? Just did you have someone help you? Did you learn on the fly? Did you, you learn on the fly? I read okay, the book well. and I took notes. I read it on a Kindle and I underlined all the interesting parts and then I printed that off and I basically took my entire team through that book in like an hour and a half hmm. and I was like we're gonna do this and we just went for it. And you encourage people to read the book. I remember picking yep. it up. I never got through the whole thing. Yeah, encourage yeah. <laughs> people to read the book. Uh, and we just started implementing Lean. Um, so that was the beginning of Lean, but it wasn't until... And what got you, uh, you said that to get you to read that book? That oh, so um, I have a friend who's an engineer at Nike, okay. and they're, they've been trying to implement Lean for a long time overseas in their factories, and he was working in one of their Chinese factories, and he was getting everybody to read that book and he told me about it because okay. he thought I'd be interested Interesting. and and I told him I read it like in a month and then I emailed him saying this is great we're implementing it and then he came by not long after that and checked it out and he's like god I've been trying to get my engineers to read this for six months and you're already <laughs> implementing it uh, so that's one of the benefits of a small company move a little faster than Nike um, <laughs> so yeah thank you to that guy uh, and um, so then, but it wasn't really until I, I, start, I started doing like lean and green tours at Plywork in 2012, so a year or so later. And you were hosting the tours and showing I was hosting people tours, showing doing. anybody interested. And it was a lot of other biz, fellow businessmen, and it was like bankers, and it was uh, uh, other um, consultants, uh, people from the, the city of Portland, from various bureaus. I think it's worth saying that lean was a business imperative that yes. you went in that direction. And then we kind of realized, oh, there's compliments in terms of waste stream reduction. Yeah, and that, that the, happened the, later. The, the... Right. Well, that deeper conversation oh, happened okay. later. Yes. But, but early on, it was clear that it wasn't going to be like one or the other. Yeah. You know? right. It was like we could hold on to the values of sustainability and move in the lean. direction of, yeah. of lean. Yeah. And when you started, you were asked to do these lean tours. And then you're like, well, actually, I'd like to bring in the green <laughs> component of it, too. Yeah. And so the tours were about basically just showing ply work and the, the yeah. processes that featured lean elements and green elements. Mm -hmm. yeah. nice. And the same happened. I, I, I took a course at the Small Business Development Center here at PCC. And as part of that series of, of workshops, one of them is about... Um, uh, about lean systems and um, I took that and then the following year after the person who taught that workshop came on a tour of ply work she was like can we teach it at ply work and half the class will be a tour of ply work so I did a lean and green tour because hmm. that's what I was doing at the time yeah. and then we taught the class there and they all loved it and then the following year she asked me to take over the class and then I actually changed the class to a lean and green to the class and I still teach it once a year at PCC yeah. um, so it's, it's been kind of this ongoing, like, I don't know, uh, development for me to, to, to really integrate the two. Uh, and it was really, where, where it started getting really interesting to me and where I'm, I connected a lot of dots in my mind, at least, 
um, was when I went to a permaculture presentation by Jenny Pell um, at Brightonbush, and I really started looking at permaculture. I was like, whoa, this is, this is so similar to lean, the way that permaculture looks at sustainability and how lean kind of looks at business, like the principles of permaculture and the theories and tools behind lean, like there was so much overlap for me. And I guess I just wasn't thinking that way yet from a, well, I, I was thinking in the very systems, um, what would you call it, systems theory way? I was thinking about the systems behind both, but in my mind I hadn't made that connection yet. And I came away from that and came back to Dave when we started talking about it. Yeah, and I was like, oh, cool, he wants to talk about permaculture now. Because <laughs> <laughs> right I've you know, gone through my own the permaculture design certification process and, uh, and hadn't brought it into my work with Plywork just because it's language that doesn't align with business for, in a lot of people's heads. Sure. I think you have to be primed, like Kel had been from his years of thinking <laughs> along these lines and caring about these things, uh, to to be receptive to the kinds of language and the, the philosophy and ideas that permaculture brings. And for me, the, when you look at it, it's like, yeah, of course, and permaculture has these great design ideas and techniques that can be integrated into any business. It just has a... a an image issue or a branding issue that uh, makes a lot of people feel like it's incongruent with 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 business practices and honestly if you look at the depth of permaculture it is incongruent with um, fundamental aspects about our economic model as it as it is practiced today and what it takes to be uh, a competitive business in a lot of sectors uh, there are things that you can draw upon from permaculture but there are things that are like oh that's that's a tough one to to embrace and incorporate yeah so we did a, a kind of a, a pitch to the pdx go green conference when he started seeing these connections and he was convinced at first i think that they were like perfectly <laughs> aligned and i said well i think you might find that there's again there's definitely overlap but there might be some incongruence so we did a a little analysis between the, the eight mudas of lean, the eight wastes, and and then the... It wasn't the, just the eight wastes, it was the eight wastes and several other concepts as well. Right. Like 5S is one of them and a few others. And, right, with uh, permaculture design principles and ethics. And like from for the starters, the ethics, uh, as it aligns with like green business practices, there's clear parallels there. Because the, there's, in business, the idea of the triple bottom line of people, planet, and profit, permaculture frames it in terms of ethics, of care for people, care for planet, and fair share. Hmm. Or early on, it was redistribute the wealth. Yeah. That one's the one that is in most, in, most <laughs> incongruent with business. Right. Yeah. It's not about profit. It's about you have a you produce a surplus because you've done such a good job of caring for the earth and caring for people that you produce a surplus now you redistribute it you give a fair share yeah i, I still somewhat disagree somewhere in my heart because i really want to want to believe that it is possible to run a business where you are redistributing the wealth amongst Absolutely. the employees and 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 for the greater good and but i, I understand that in general that is not the case <laughs> Pro, yeah, what does profit mean well it's you know for the shareholders right yeah and and that's not Redistributing right. the surplus. Right. Yeah. Um, so 
that you know that's one kind of its own analysis and in terms of the design principles of permaculture and the uh, lean practices and, and and waste we found that there was a lot of complement and a lot of overlap but then there were certain things that were uh, were hard to reconcile mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to remember from lean point of view but like you know like time is important in lean like you know you things are moving and yeah. you don't want something sh sitting on a shelf for a while whereas in the permaculture world you know it's like you give things the time that they need and you know they grow at their own pace you you know multiple years even to yeah yeah slow and, yeah. small scale intensive systems you know slower is is faster in the long run um and from a lean perspective, it's really hard to integrate that into your into your business model. For ply work, one of the things that we looked at was when you kind of started expanding your product line, and you were using the um, the conditioning or the the finish on the mm -hmm. uh, what was the name of the Stanley? Mm -hmm. Yep, Stanley. Our Stanley little, product. Yeah, a little stand thing for pictures. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, a walnut product that we were putting a finish on. It was like a wax-based finish. Uh, yeah, it was a wax-based finish, I think. Yeah. No, it wasn't. It was a oil-based finish. Right, and that cured faster, so you could like apply it, you had a short dry time, and then you could handle it again, and you could ship it out, right? Yeah. But it was oil-based, and it you know was not in alignment with the system's conditions. I think one of the other things as well that we came across was that from a, from a lean perspective, it was better to buy much smaller cans more often than it was to buy a big can, you know, less often. But from a sustainability perspective, it makes more sense to buy a big can less often because then you're only shipping it once. You only have one can that's being manufactured, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. So um, that, that, was, that was interesting, too. That's one of those ones where they didn't quite align. And the natural product, yeah, you, you applied it and it had a much longer dry time. So now you have to dedicate space for shelving and things to dry longer. Right. Yeah. And I needed two coats as well. That was a big problem. So there's an extra labor cost there. So again, this is where business practices and forces there yeah. can make it harder to implement best practices in regards yeah. to sustainability. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, we did. We, video. We'll I'll link up the video too. Yeah, yeah. So, so we did available. the we did a pitch to uh, go green, and then they ultimately thought that it would be better, and they were totally right <laughs> uh, to to focus it on on looking at business through the lens of permaculture. So lean kind of got okay. cut cut out of it. Okay. Uh, I did talk about what led to that workshop at the beginning of the workshop, uh, but yeah, it, it was. But I guess what what I, what it comes back to your question about um, you know um, lean and green and how that kind of started. Getting, becoming much more intertwined within my organization within ply work and then for me it was was really the the permaculture thing and and now i see going looking back the thing that that really was the big connector and what was the driver was the fact that you know ultimately lean and permaculture are both practices that employ general systems thinking or general open systems thinking mm -hmm. which is what they've had originally taught us all and how we he had introduced me and the organization to sustainability and then later i picked up lean not realizing that it's really kind of the same way of thinking it's also a, a way of systems thinking lean is very much that mm. and later i made those connections and now that's something that i i see myself much more 
as a system thinker, then I didn't see myself as a mathematician. And that's, that's just part of it. So, um, yeah, it was kind of, it came full circle for me. And that's something that's been more recent. But I think it's really exciting when, uh, when you start thinking of lean from um, uh, a systems theory perspective, it, it opens up a lot more. It makes it a lot more full. It comes more closer to the original kind of Japanese version of lean that we often talk about. Uh, where we're really thinking about, you know, the people and the culture and how everything influences each other within the organization. Um, and that, I like that way of thinking. And that ties a lot into, if you start thinking about sustainability, it, I mean, at that point, when you start thinking about systems theory, sustainability comes into it pretty quickly. It just mm -hmm. makes sense. Because once you get people involved, like, it, you have to start thinking about that. Yeah, I'd add that the cultural component of it and integrating it throughout the organization. Again, Gil as the leader embraced sustainability, but then he gave permission to his employees to think about it and invested in them, their knowledge and education around it, and then gave them the freedom to look for opportunities to incorporate some of the best practices. So a lot of things that Plywork ended up doing over the years, you know, I just was maybe a kind of a a check to say, hey, you know, we're thinking about this. How's this sound? I was like, yeah, that's awesome. Um, as opposed to me generating ideas for them. And a lot of it came from within. I think lean you know, is a similar idea where you can have a lean expert and they can only take something so far if everybody in the organization doesn't understand what it's about, doesn't care about it, and isn't empowered to incorporate it into, into the workplace. Right. What are some of the ideas that came up from the employees? Do you recall any examples or <clears throat> um, suggestions that came through that they mm -hmm. noticed or observed that would be kind of, uh, you know, what a lean program would try to bring up from the worker level to say, this is what I'm doing every day, and I start to see this, these opportunities, either on the sustainability side or lean side? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the processes that we put in place when it came to lean, almost all the processes we put in place on the production line, which is where we started, were developed by the employees actually doing the work. Uh, and then obviously, like once that process was in place, we had an A to test against a B, which allowed them for Kaizen and for them to continue to develop those processes and make them better and work together on those. Uh, and that was really all about them. And it was hugely empowering to them as well. But we took that same approach to sustain. And I think actually, this is our our investment in sustainability early on before we went lean was kind of a primer to that way of thinking that we wanted our employees to be empowered and feel empowered and have the uh, ability to take time to develop those programs. So, cause that had already been happening, you know, um, the kind of culture we had at Plywork was definitely one of people who were interested in sustainability. So to be able to bring it, to be asked to bring that to the workplace, that way of thinking was, was actually somewhat of a benefit. Yeah. <laughs> like they, they liked that Imagine. a lot. Um, and well, they would have... I was just going to say we started advertising the job and incorporating in the, in the application process and the interview process yeah, questions about sustainability. Yeah. So that How do you feel about sustainability? Yeah. <laughs> so that people oh. understood that this was a serious value of the company. Mm -hmm. And people could self-select into it if they want to yeah. be a part of that culture, great. And if it's something that they're not interested in or not comfortable with, then, <laughs> you know, yeah. they only have themselves to blame for, you know, yeah. taking the job. And yeah. 
And yeah, I would I say we never didn't hire somebody if they, they weren't interested in it. But I know that we definitely hired people who, who weren't interested, who became very interested in it. I mean, it's hard, to not, get, it's hard yeah. to not get influenced by it. You know? yeah. uh, and then as far as things that the, the, the employees brought up, um, I'm pretty sure the bike tracking was something the employees yeah. came up with. Yeah. So we uh, we started tracking yeah. all the mileage because we, we realized that was an example of something that we had identified in our about whole system evaluation was transportation okay. and like like how people are getting there. We weren't about to tell people how to get to work, right? But it was just kind of on the map as this is you know something to be thinking about in terms of the company's overall impacts, and because the people of the company cared about it, and you know they they embrace the idea of okay yeah i'll bike into work a little more frequently um, as a part of my commitment to helping the organization with with its sustainability efforts and then ended up you know somebody else came up with the idea of let's track our miles and yeah created so a we, logging system yeah yeah we had this little logging system where when you came in in the morning it was literally just a printout on a clipboard that was a table that was every day of the month yeah, uh, that those were the the columns, and then the rows was your name. Yeah, and then you just checked off every day that you rode your bike into work, hmm. and we would enter the number total number of days into a spreadsheet, and that spreadsheet knew how many miles your commute to work was, and would give us the total for the month, and we would update our website with the total miles ridden commuted, you know, uh, since and we actually just did it since March of two thousand. What was it? Fourteen, I think we started tracking or something. So it just said, since March 2014, we've ridden this many miles, commuted this many miles by bike, this many round trips, and we've burned this many calories and this many donuts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> donuts. Of course. Um, and we just updated every month. It was just a, it was basically the table on our website pulled from a little Google spreadsheet. And it was so simple and so so impactful. And it definitely encouraged people to, damn, I got my mileage is down this month. Yeah. I need to get mine up. And a complimentary business policy was you could get some money for parking or if you didn't drive yeah. and you didn't need a parking spot, then you could get the same amount of money towards bike gear or, or a, a pair of shoes, a pair of sh bike shoes. Yeah. That's right. No, it wasn't yeah. bike shoes. It was just because, okay, so it was walking, originally, yeah. originally it was like you either get a parking pass, which was $60, I think. Or we'll give you sixty dollars to spend on bike parts. You just buy the parts and show us the receipt, and we'll give you the money back. Hmm. Um, and then a girl who started working for us saying, "Look, I don't have a car, and I don't bike. I can't bike, but hmm. I walk to work every day, and I need a better pair of shoes to walk to work in and wear at work." And we're like, "Okay, sure. that's fair. Just bring the receipt, and we'll pay for it." So she got herself a nice pair of Nikes to walk to work in and have a run work, and was super happy about that. So yeah, it was it was fun. Nice. It was fun to do those kind of things. I'd also say that the, the trash and recycling was something that we were so good at, and that was all employee-driven. Like, mm -hmm. we found something for everything, somebody for everything. Like, all of our leftover bits of scrap wood, all the tiny bits went to a place called Scrap in Portland, um, who then used that to sell it to a lot of artists and makers, and all the money is then put towards after-school programs and helping uh, after-school programs. They also donate a lot to schools mm -hmm. for art materials. Uh, and then all of our sawdust was actually collected once a month or so by a woman who lived on a farm and she used it for her pathways, I think. I think she also burned it in a furnace. Um, and then um, we also collected every single possible kind of plastic you can have and had different boxes for each one that one of our uh, employees set up. And then we would take that to Far West Fiber Recycling every couple of months. So like, there was very little that 
our trash was so small that like we used to we used to have our own container like a small container there because you, you couldn't have a trash can it was like a commercial property you had to have a container and we had the smallest yeah. container possible and we would fill maybe not even 10 percent of it over like three weeks or something yeah. so in the end we ended up sharing a container with one of our neighbors and then eventually we were just like we'll just one of us will just take it home once a week because it's just like <laughs> we already generated wow. much. it was like so little trash and the most trash we did still generate was the the it was actually those backing sheets to the adhesive yeah that was most of our trash. I never trash. figured out a good no. solution for that. Yeah. But for a business, we, we generated not much trash. And actually, mm -hmm. one issue, one thing that we did generate quite a lot of <laughs> was uh, was compost because for a while we had free lunch for everybody. So when I had 20 people working there, we were providing free lunch every day for everybody. So I, had a, I actually hired a guy that would come in to cook. He would come in at 11 and work until like 2 or 3 every day. And cook for us so we had a lot of compost but commercial composting was <laughs> was was not was just starting to happen then and it was it was tricky getting that you know why do you need compost you don't have a restaurant it's like yeah but <laughs> um yeah cool i guess uh and what's next for both of you um are you working with any other businesses um some of the stuff you're teaching um yeah so i don't know if i i hadn't mentioned that i i teach at portland state i teach a, a range of courses from your basic psychology to really sustainability focused coursework uh, and I, I see myself continuing to do that so long as they're happy to have me around <laughs> um, but then yeah i'm uh, exploring some other options right now including doing some more uh, sustainability consulting. Um, Kill and I are uh, putting together some workshops around uh, cultures of collaboration um, mm -hmm. because that was so key to sustainability efforts, being successful, but then lean um, really requires that you know people working together to solve problems because everybody has their own perspective, their own piece of the puzzle, yep. and if you're going to have whole system solutions you really need you know all those perspectives all pieces of the puzzle represented um, and yeah to get that you need to work together and uh, in western society we're not always well trained to <laughs> to um, effectively collaborate so that's something we're going to be doing um, and uh, i'm planning on doing some other workshops around systems thinking in different settings and i'm also um, involved in some conversations. We'll see if it goes anywhere, but a big idea called intergenerational finance, which is about um, getting investment dollars of today to support the, the development of systems that deliver beneficial outcomes for the future. Mm. And uh, so in the early phases of some uh, conversations and uh, very likely could get seriously involved in that in the near future. Um, yeah, I'm, so as, as of February 1st of, of last year, I've been a full-time lean consultant, um, and I, I love working with smaller organizations. Um, I primarily work with organizations that have a decent amount of material flow. They don't have to be a manufacturer. It might be a service-based company who service parts or service machines, yeah. but a lot of material flow. I'm really interested in 
the whole of the picture. A kind of holistic mm -hmm. business to me is one that has, you know, cash flow, material flow, energy flow, uh, um, information flow, uh, and something that I like to call reality flow as well. Um, and just the intersection of all of those and then how sustainability fits into that is something I'm really interested in. I don't always get to practice it with my companies that I work with because they don't always, um, aren't always interested necessarily in sustainability. But I will say that just the idea of like the collaboration of culture or the cultural collaboration workshop that we're working on and getting people thinking that way ultimately tends to open people's minds up a little bit more to thinking about sustainability. I think when you, once you start thinking in a systems way, you're in a true systems way from, from the perspective that I think that you have to incorporate people into it. And this is, again, we talked about this, you know, Japanese lean versus American lean, uh, taking American lean where it's just tools and theory and just kind of piecemealing it in a business as a project versus Japanese lean where it's an entire organizational transformation towards people really working together as a culture using the tools and theory of lean. Yeah. So that's what I'm interested in. That's what I push for. And doing that, when you get people thinking that way, first of all, you're getting them to collaborate in a way that's much more meaningful. And secondly, you're getting to getting them thinking about in a systems theory way or thinking using systems theory. And by doing that, you're ultimately going to make them a lot more susceptible to talking about sustainability. And I have found that with with one or two clients so far that I'm able to bring that into the conversation and they're a lot more open to it. Um, so that's that's a huge interest to me and I'll continue to push that. Yeah, that's um, <clears throat> I think it's uh, interesting what I've heard is just the conversations that's of uh, a guy in the wood shop asking you about bamboo and asking that question and you talking to Kel and just asking him about his business and those ideas just kind of planting the seeds of that um you know I've, I found that on my work too that you think no one's interested and then you just ask some questions and you find out there's a little interest there it's it's enough to get the ball rolling and sometimes that's all it takes is somebody just asking the right question at the right time or planting that seed so I think that's pretty interesting to hear that, you know, as a business owner, where you got influence to change the way you run your business, mm -hmm. which didn't seem like it was forced on you. It wasn't like there was a regulation or something. It was just kind of different influences from different perspectives coming together. That's pretty cool. So yeah. trying to think of other people in, in their jobs today who work in a business or know somebody, how they can take that next step and maybe it's just asking the question, what are we doing about our energy usage or what are we yeah. doing with this material that we're throwing away? Is there a better source out there? I think that can be a, mm -hmm. a start of something. Just getting people to do like paper recycling is a huge step sometimes. Yeah. Or composting. One little thing like that. Yeah. It could get the ball rolling with other initiatives. So yeah. and the key so is to not be complacent and feel like, okay, well I'm doing one thing. So, you know, we got a recycling part. bin. We're done, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and opening the lens to the much broader sets of influences that our actions have. And he's mentioning like the flows. It's like, what is, what is the cumulative set of our relationships with the environment in terms of what material energy information flows are we constantly drawing upon, drawing in, and where are they going, and what are the impacts that they're having? Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah thinking longer term about what kinds of conditions are we creating today and what what's that setting up for for the future i would also say that you know it, it started off by someone just questioning me about using my material use i want to use bamboo it's more sustainable 
um, and talking to Dave. And then that all of that work, everything we've talked about today, kind of came together in, in something that we call the Plyric Manifesto, yeah. uh, which you can still find online. If you type in Plyric Manifesto, it's still downloadable as a PDF. And that was really kind of the epitome of all that work that we did and really the epitome of what was the the culture of ply work to me. That's what the manifesto was all about. It was talking about what was the driving culture behind ply work. And it integrated, it has lean in there. There's a picture Taichi you know, in that manifesto. <laughs> and it integrated in all of this, our sustainability practices and how we thought about people and how we thought about, about business and what its role was uh, within within our planet, within the system that we all live in. So I think that that was, I don't know, to me, that was a moment of pride publishing that. Uh, I worked on it with Dave and uh, all of my employees had their input as well. Uh, and when we actually published it, we, it was MLK Day in uh, 2015, I believe, where every MLK Day we would always pay our employees if they wanted to, they could take it off as an unpaid holiday or they could uh, volunteer. Day on have a day on, but we would volunteer our time somewhere and we would pay them to do that. So we'd volunteer with Johnson Creek Watershed Council and helping yep. creek restoration. We did that two years in a row. Yeah. Um, and then one year we went out to another land site. Yeah, we went gorge. to Atlan Center. Yeah. So A-T-L-A-N, Atlan Center. And we, we spent a half day volunteering with uh, trail restoration work at Atlan Center. And then in return, they gave us the center, which was... Uh, at the time, it's basically like a meditation platform, and there was like this place they called the, the forest camp. That was a, a big year, and then there was also this uh, this small like circle in the forest that they made of logs and everything. That was really beautiful. And we went to each of those places, and we read a chapter from our manifesto, and then I requested feedback from all my employees on what they thought about it. And and I was taking notes to like, okay, what do we need to refine to make sure that this manifesto is really reflective in an authentic of way of the yeah. company. Yeah. And then we did like a version two. And actually it was very surprising to me uh, and Dave, I think as well, that it wasn't, we didn't change much. Yeah. They, they were we, really, we, I think we built on it. If anything, it was like, oh yeah, there's I think, more depth here than then, maybe it's yeah. fully captured. Yeah. That came out through the employees. But there was nothing that they were like, well, it does not us, you know. And it was, yeah, it was really yeah. special. It was a really good time. One thing that's spoken to in there that we maybe haven't touched on a lot in this is like the, the, the relationships outside of the organization with local partners as well mm -hmm. and sourcing locally. And oh, yeah. we talked about China sourcing for bamboo, um, but there was also a commitment to local sourcing everywhere that we could. And we did end up like the Stanley, the walnut, um, that product that was mentioned earlier, that was uh, local walnut that was actually off, off cuts from another. It was off cuts shop. and trees that have been cut, either down trees that came down naturally yeah. or trees that were cut salvage. because they were hazards. Yeah, so salvage, salvage wood. walnut, the Gobi walnut we used to get it from. Yeah, hmm. and so a lot of it was upcycled material from another nice. wood shop. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, the local relationships and the commitment to the local community, and I think that's part of what made Plywork be as successful as it was, is that um, it had so many strong relationships in the local community and, um, you know, people willing to go a little bit out of their way to help each other. And when there was a problem in the supply chain somewhere that you could pick up a phone and talk to the person, you knew that person, you know, face-to-face, -face. Those, yeah. those relationships are really important part of systems that have integrity, that are 
able to you know, withstand the challenges and the tests of, of time because they they uh, yeah can work with and adapt to those changes with the support of the broader community. And I think that's something that that really kind of dovetails very nicely into Lean again, because the whole like being able to adapt to whatever's happening out there, that's the agility that Lean can give you to be able to do that. And and Lean also really pushed us to, we, we, cha we changed a lot of our vendors when we went Lean, because Lean really pushed us to look at our vendors from a different perspective, hmm. which not only was it like we need smaller deliveries, but it was also about like, are you really providing the quality that we're asking for? Are you delivering on time? Is the product quality there? And then we were also asking them like, are you really like providing a sustainable solution to us here? And we started asking more questions of our, um, our vendors if they were doing that. So this whole lean approach that we took to it um, helped us have a much better relationship with our vendors because ultimately you got to be able to trust your vendors to deliver and the only way to do that is to have a really healthy relationship with them <laughs> uh, they need to understand you need to communicate so and that communication also then like opens up those channels of of um of dialogue where you start talking about the product and we you know we influenced our vendors as well so to, yeah, to think great. about sustainability and we we actually sent a letter to one of our vendors once because it was a box vendor i believe that was providing a cardboard box that was made uh, with cardboard that was sustainably sustainable forestry initiative certified. Which is the FSC is the third party certification, and then SFI is the industry based certification. They were certified under that. Yeah, so it's basically and, the lumber industry certifying themselves through yeah. an organization. And it's better than nothing. And it was know, better than nothing. And it's yes. actually it has gotten it has gotten more rigorous yeah. um, over the years. Um, and but, so we yeah. wrote them a letter at the time saying, well, you know, you're, you're the best we can find right now, basically. <laughs> and we would like to see you, you know, like move in the direction of FSC if you can, you know, here and here's the short, our concern is here's the shortcomings with the SFI. Um, and we included and, some blog posts, or not blog posts, but some articles that were written about SFI. Yeah. Uh, hmm. And, you know, we did the research. And send that along with it. Yeah, and you know we we didn't. Uh, JJ would be better to speak to this. Who was kind of in charge of operations? He had the more primary contact with them. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, there was that willingness on Plyworks end to uh, to be very upfront about the values of the company and what kinds of partnerships we, we wanted to be in. Um, and I will say that I think the thing that people always were attracted to with Plywork is that we were never, or maybe we were sometimes, I don't know, from people's other, other people's perspective, but it, I don't think we came across too much as being like snobby about our efforts in sustainability. You know, we, we had people come have through. to ask around. I don't... Yeah, you have to ask around. <laughs> but I mean, if I think about all the Lean and Green tours I gave and the kind of people that went on those... It was such a massive variety of people, and everybody yeah. thought it was really interesting what we were doing, and nobody gave gave us the idea like, who do you who do you think you are? You know, <laughs> um, I think people really respected uh, who we were and and what we were trying to do, um, because we weren't telling people how to do it. We were just telling people like, this is what we're doing. Check it out. It wasn't prescriptive. Mm -hmm. It was just descriptive when we were talking to people.
and you're showing, hey, we're not perfect. We're working oh, yeah. on some yeah. things. Absolutely. We're not yeah, we're not perfect. Is, we're sustainable yet. Yeah. Yeah. I think that uh, helps. And, I, you know, I was always very aware and not, I just didn't want to tell. I, I, first of all, Portland's a very small city. You don't want to burn bridges. Secondly, I don't enjoy burning bridges because that's no, no fun anyway. <laughs> um, so, you know, I was always very careful to make sure that we didn't step on toes. I knew that not everybody thought the same way we did, but I also knew that, like, the lean practices were something that most business people could get behind because it led to real cost savings, right? So that made sense to them. Yeah. Now, the green practice was something that I was able to push in there with it as part of, like, the lean practice because it, it's thinking about things in a systems way. So they went hand in hand. So I was able to deliver a package that got them thinking about green, whereas really they were just more interested in lean. So it was a, it was a nice compliment. I think. So on that topic, um, do you think the sustainability efforts in the eco effort you put in had business success it led to new markets or different product lines? Or, you know, do you think they're the bottom line benefit of the green efforts? that you were putting in place. Um, you said there was some cost savings on some of the initiatives there. Um, mm -hmm. Are there other things that are maybe harder to quantify up front, but looking back, you said, yeah, if we hadn't have done that, we might not have gotten this uh, order, or we might not have gotten this customer, or had this offering or product line come out, come up, come well, in. Well, I think, I think the biggest, you know, the proof is in the pudding, as they say, the biggest one is the fact that I was able to sell the brand. Um, and the value in the brand, I mean, and, and I'll quote the guy uh, who bought the brand for me. He, when we got on the phone and we were actually gonna go out of business, I'll just give the story here. We'd been running ply work and we'd, be, we'd been having uh, declining sales for several years. Uh, and that was mainly based on the fact that our competitors were starting to copy us, uh, but they were doing it cheaper. Uh, and they were doing it cheaper in the sense that they just weren't didn't care so much about the quality. Uh, and before we had a lot of people who were buying from us who maybe didn't care about the quality, but were buying from us because we were the only, only people there. And, and then that changed. But the one thing that people, the people that did buy from us bought from us because of the product quality, which includes the sustainable aspect mm -hmm. of it. Yeah. Uh, that was very big. Eco-conscious. Yeah, you know, Eco -conscious I mean, we, aspect we had like photographers <laughs> from Patagonia who would use our products. And it made total yeah. sense. You yeah. know, photographer from Patagonia, you know, like it was the perfect match. Unfortunately, just, there wasn't enough of them in the marketplace to sustain the kind of business we wanted to be. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, well, we tried to sell the business. We tried to, you know, find someone to come and take over, and that didn't work. And then we decided to close the business. And we sent out a newsletter to everybody saying, we're closing the business. This is your last chance to buy ply work. It was like December 2015. And then uh, I got a phone call the next day from one of our competitors who was on our mailing list. Uh, he ran a company called PrintsOnWood.com. His name is Derek. And uh, Derek said to me, you can't go out of business. You guys are the best in the business. You're the good uh, guys. You're the good guys. <laughs> yeah. That's what he said. Because you guys are, you know, your sustainability practices are for real. I've read your manifesto. I love everything you do. And your quality is amazing. Your product quality is outstanding. So, you know, one of the benefits that we got from, from focusing on and being conscious about our, our quality from a sustainability perspective, it immediately, and I talked about this earlier, started making us a lot more conscious about our quality from just a build quality perspective. So we literally, and we knew we were, we, we set ourselves to be the best in the industry. Like mm -hmm. our panels were way smoother than our competitors and we had less dings and no holes in the side and you wouldn't find weird like scratches in the print or you might not find the, 
a little speck of dust bump underneath it because we would redo it if that happened. Mm -hmm. And we were very, very good at doing that and getting that quality using lean. And our prices were a little more, but not much. And this guy saw that value and he was like, you can't go out of business. What can I do to help? And I was like, well, you can buy the brand. <laughs> and he wired me a down payment that day. Wow. It was a dumb deal. Um, and he took over the brand and he still owns it. And, you know, he just redid the website. And if you go through Batter's page, it talks about me and Kim starting it. Talks about, still talks about our sustainability efforts. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're now all made using 100% solar power because that's what he was doing anyway. Down in LA, they have they have a lot of sun. <laughs> <laughs> Not important, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know. And we had to close our operation here. Um, everybody here lost their jobs. Uh, I helped some of my employees find new positions mm -hmm. just through my network. We're still all very good friends. We all get together quite often and a couple of times a year. Yeah. Um, so it was. Flyrock was an amazing, amazing thing. Ten years. Ten years. Yeah. yeah. It's ten That's years. Excellent. And you know, it was. If I look back at it now, like the benefits of ply work to everybody who was involved, including myself, far outweighed the negatives. And we had a very good time doing it, and we learned a lot. And it was a an experiment that is still ongoing. A lean experiment. Yes. Yeah, it's still out there. <laughs> it is a little bit of a sobering story too. You, you've been I've heard you say a couple of times that by every measure, ply work was a success, except at the end of the day, the financial bottom line. Yeah. And I do think that. For me. <laughs> that that they you asked the question here about was there a benefit to the bottom line. Yeah. And I think Kel's commitment to manufacture locally and to buy higher quality materials that had a you know a, a better ecological footprint were more responsibly sourced. Uh, those things did come with an economic cost that uh, that might have priced out some people that might have, you know, buying by buy, yeah. lowest cost or yeah. cheapest item. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where, you know, again, the, the economics, particularly in a competitive world where price is king in the eyes of a lot of consumers. And pollution's um, free. Yeah. <laughs> and and so the environment's free. Yeah. It's yeah. Because a, we can externalize all those costs. Yep. So Kel is doing his best to internalize all those costs. And there were there's a portion of the market that was willing to pay for that, but it was it's a niche. Yeah. Yeah. And fortunately, I think for sustainable businesses to, or for for businesses that embrace sustainability, uh, and that are moving towards becoming truly, truly sustainable, it's going to require the broader you know consciousness of of society to say these are things that we value yep. and that I'm willing to um, invest more in this relationship to get these um, materials or products and the services sourced from because I understand that they represent these larger set of values beyond just the economic bottom line. Right, right. And I think what, what Lean really does there is that it gives you an edge that you need if you want to be able to produce a product on demand at a very high quality and make everything in the US. Because when you're doing that, you're automatically limiting yourself by making things in the US. I mean, the labor cost is astronomically more expensive. But even saying that, like we, and this is something that was always very hard for me at Plyra, because that the actual product cost 
to me was very high. Like me running my company and paying myself what I was paying myself, I could not afford my own product. And that's something I just accepted at one point and was like, okay, that's just what it is. Um, and there were people who were out there who could afford that and really and loved the product and were happy to pay it. A mm-hmm. lot of people. But um, there's still not enough people like that who are willing to do that in the marketplace to support certain companies. And a few people told me since Plyrick that, you know, we, we just were there too early. You know, that's something that's becoming more mainstream, but still a small minority. Yeah. But definitely yeah. we, we, we started maybe a little too early in the game for what we were doing, a particular product we were doing. Um, but without Lean, we wouldn't have survived as long as we did. We wouldn't have gotten as far. And I had investors in Plywork. And you know everybody, including myself, who invested money into Plywork, we all lost everything we put into it. However, I am still good friends with all the investors that put money into Plywork. And all of us agreed together to allow Plywork to be what it was. And when they invested in Plywork, we already had our sustainability practices in place. Mm. And the first thing I would tell them as well, besides that, is like, I'm not going to change my sustainability practices, that this is who you, what you're investing in. Yeah. And secondly, if you can't afford to invest, then don't, if you can't afford to lose your money, don't money. invest. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I was very upfront with people <laughs> that like, this is an uphill battle. Yeah. And for them, yeah. it was important enough. And they, they, you know, they all saw the opportunity like I did. You know, I honestly believe we could, we, there, was an, there was a possibility we might do it. Yeah. With the odds stacked against us? Yes, of course. Any business you are, even if you aren't sustainable. Yeah. But I also saw that we had a niche and we did fill that niche and we did it pretty well for 10 years. We did very well uh, to the point where somebody saw the value in that and bought the brand. Um, And again, that wasn't enough to cover the investments, but it was certainly um, allowed us to close the company up with some form of pride that somebody else is willing to take it over and move it forward. That all those 10 years we put in, everybody, every person that worked there, all the investors, including myself and my wife, that we didn't do it for nothing. And, and, you know, that Dave and I didn't work so hard on the sustainability efforts at Plywork and that it just went nowhere. Yeah. It actually went somewhere. So, and that's, I think, again, like in what Dave said, you know, it was a financial failure, but from every other perspective, it was such a roaring success and still is. And those successes far, far, in my mind, outweigh the losses. If you look at it from a experiment perspective, it's the learnings, you know, and maybe it's this interview and it's, it's your manifesto and the videos and the subsequent talks on that, that the next company that goes down this path learns from that and takes it to the next level and and can adopt some of the practices and then go even further from that. So, yeah, I mean, the story sounds like it's not over. Nope. It's mm-hmm. kind of a continuation and... Um, yeah, this has been excellent. It's very enlightening and very cool what you guys did. So, very well, exciting. Thanks for the conversation. Yeah, yeah thank you. It's nice good. to share it. I'll Anything add, else you want to add? Well, yeah. I'll add one other thing. You can leave it in or you can cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> so, today is the day after the, the Trump inauguration. Uh-huh. Yep. And <laughs> Kill and I just came from the, the Women's March. Yes. And there's a lot of concern and anxiety about... Uh, the kinds of policies that this administration is going to move forward, particularly as it relates to matters of equity and social justice, and in terms of the environment, yeah. climate change. You know, they made it a priority apparently to take down information from the White <laughs> House page about about climate change yeah. policy. And um, I think uh, recognizing uh, that political reality of where we're at, 
one of the most important places for us to put our kind of personal energy and collective energy, I think, is in advancing the idea of a green economy. Yeah. Because one thing that uh, Trump touched on that I think is valid is the economic hardship that many people have experienced, and particularly in rural communities that many of which were kind of these manufacturing-based jobs, but then also uh, natural resource-based jobs like in, in the West, you know, where uh, things like uh, the Endangered Species Act are really important in terms of maintaining long-term ecological uh, stability and balance. And, yeah. and balance. Um, but at the same time has undermined opportunity for a lot of people to have living wage jobs. Um, so he's he's struck, I think, a valid chord there that hasn't been given enough attention in the yeah. media coverage um, and, and is serving to continue to divide the urban-rural communities and the red, uh, yeah. the red landscapes and the blue islands, um, okay. which is how I see it when I look at a map. <laughs> yep. um, and I think the opportunity for unification and, uh, and identification of the shared values is in this idea of a green economy. How can we um, get people to work uh, on helping to serve the needs that we all have to live a good life as human beings, but doing so in a way that is uh, conscientious of the broader impacts that we have on the one and only known planet, mm -hmm. uh, one and only known living planet. Uh, and uh, and I think that's a, a message that can potentially uh, resonate across political boundaries. Yeah, I'll second that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also, I mean, I very much agree that we need to bring manufacturing back to the U.S., and I agree with it from the perspective of localized economies. I think we need to start localizing mm -hmm. economies a lot more, and one localized localization we can look at is our country. Um, so in that sense, I agree with uh, uh, with President Trump, um, and I really hope that he is able to do that in a way that makes sense uh, and actually has uh, uh, the effect that he desires. I mean, it's not easy bringing back manufacturing. It's yeah. the first thing he's going to have to do is to get people to understand that if they're going to buy things that are made in the US, they have to pay two or three times as much for those, even if that company is practicing lean, which hopefully they will be, because that will help. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter, because even, even if they're not eco-conscious necessarily, and they're just trying to like pay their employees a living wage of 15 or 17 or $18 an hour, if you want to have those manufacturing jobs back here in the US, start telling the general public that they can't buy as much. Yeah. That's a very hard, hard, hard argument to bring to the table, but that's the only way that he's going to do that. So we'll see. Mm -hmm. Or and, if we can externalize those yeah. costs somehow, mm -hmm. where you know it does cost. You are paying for the carbon, you're paying for the environmental damage, and that's built into the price. Then yeah. the green products will start to, will it'll raise up the price of the other ones beyond what a green product costs, mm -hmm. and yeah. then it is a financial benefit. But right now, that yeah. that imbalance in the economy is not there yet. So. Yeah. It's fighting against that too. And again, like I think, you know, the, the two things that that I was always fighting at Plywork is one is the price that I can ask from my clientele, which was never enough, but it was still really expensive, mm -hmm. and how much I could afford to pay my employees, which was never enough, but it was still really expensive. Yeah. 
<laughs> and that is that is where that that little thin line in between is where you got to like somehow build a business and that was not enough at plywork unfortunately and again the reason is quite simple is that we have to pay more for our products if we want to bring them back to the u.s our standard of living and requirements and and base income is so high now what we expect to earn is so high now that the products that we're going to make earning that money are going to have to be very very expensive mm -hmm. and that's okay you just buy five t-shirts a year instead of 20. <laughs> right you know high Not quality t-shirts high quality t-shirts yeah. five t-shirts a year <laughs> okay well one in Dave's case <laughs> used and then you'll repair it <laughs> awesome anything else yeah it's been great well, there's a lot more, but yeah, yeah maybe that'll be our next, another our next conversation. Interview. Yeah, another <laughs> conversation. We Thank you, Brian. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank time. you. That was very interesting. I think people will enjoy this.